welcome everyone formally to tonight's Citizens Climate Lobby training program. It's a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobby that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Sees, and tonight we're going to join CCL's research coordinator, Dana Nucitelli, for a special training on Dana's work assembling region-specific climate impact decks for you and your presentations. These decks detail the most important climate change impacts from each of the seven regions in the continental United States. Each slide contains the scientific source references in the notes, which are primarily from two sources, the 2018 Fourth National Climate Assessment Report and the Working Group of Number One of the 2021 IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Sixth Assessment Report. These two were selected because they're the most comprehensive and authoritative assessments of the latest and the greatest climate science research pertaining to the United States and the world, respectively. But Dana has also woven in individual papers referenced as well. So the slide decks themselves are intended to help you as CCL leaders deliver local presentations about how climate change is already showing up and impacting people living in our area. As this summer has highlighted, we don't need too much reminding. What we need is some connections and we need some solution advocacy. So they also have that. And we'll also make sure to not only talk about specific impacts from soaring temperatures, growing numbers of wildfires, more frequent stronger storms or floods, uh, but also educating the public and calling attention to why we should care and how we can get active. So to do that, you're in great hands. Let me tell you a little bit more about my friend and our featured speaker tonight. Dana is an environmental scientist with degrees in astrophysics and physics from UC Berkeley and UC Davis. Dana is a climate journalist uh, for skepticalscience.com, the original, The Guardian, and Yale Climate Connections. Dana won a prestigious SEAL award that stands for sustainability, environmental achievement, and leadership in journalism last year, one of a very august group to receive that honor and is also a Friends of the Earth NSCE Award winner. Dana has authored 10 peer-reviewed climate science papers and has also published the book Climatology versus Pseudoscience. So we've got a real expert with us tonight to walk us through these impacts. And if we've done our job well, the following three learning goals are what each of you will be walking away with. We'll have the chance to reintroduce CCL's resource, these regional climate impact slide decks, We'll be able to outline the key climate impacts no matter where you live in each of the seven U.S. regions to really tell that unique story about what's already happening and what predict, uh, is predicted to continue to happen. And then lastly, we're going to also highlight how you can use this resource and the solutions advocacy within these decks within your own outreach. So with that, I will pass it to you, Dana, again, for all of you joining in. Since we started, feel free to share in the chat where you're calling in from and start teeing up your questions in the Q&A. And with that, we've got a great presentation tonight. Great. Thanks, Brett. Hi, everybody. So, yeah, the idea here is that we had all these crazy extreme weather impacts this summer uh, all over the country, all different kinds. And so we want to help people make those connections between the extreme weather events that they're experiencing directly and climate change. Because oftentimes people are asked, like, has climate change directly impacted you, they'll answer no because they don't make these connections. Uh, they don't realize that these extreme heat waves and wildfires and hurricanes that they're seeing are impacted by climate change. So these are the different regions that we've broken out our resources into. 
Uh, you can see the seven in the continental United States. Uh, there's also Alaska, Hawaii, and the Caribbean, which we don't have uh, slide decks for, but if there is demand for those, we could create those as well. But we're gonna be focusing on the continental United States regions today. So each of those regions has its own slide deck. I've also made a video recording that's available on our resource page um, so that you can either see how I would deliver the presentation or if you just want to show my video recording, that's an option too. Um, but the slide decks, they don't have like script to go along with them. And so I think it's a useful thing to see like how I would talk about each of the individual slides. Uh, but in the notes, we do have the sources for where the information came from for each slide. And uh, you're definitely encouraged if you're going to use these slides to tailor them to suit whatever the restrictions are on the particular event that you're doing, because, uh, you know, each presentation, each event has different time constraints and different audiences and people want to know different things. And so uh, these uh, slide decks are basically like templates, and then you should go forth and change them however you see fit to best meet the needs of your unique events. And then, of course, as Brett said, we want to pair these impacts discussions with solutions also because uh, these impacts are kind of a downer and we don't want to just leave people discouraged thinking about the bad impacts that are going to hit them. We also want them to realize that we have solutions that are going to help uh, minimize these effects. And so we want to like use the impacts to transition into talking about the solutions. So if you're going to do a presentation, don't just do the impacts, also do solutions. And we're going to, at the end of this, show some examples of some slides that you could include in talking about our policy agenda solutions as well. Uh, and you don't just have to use this uh, information for presentations. Uh, you could also use it for LTEs and op-eds and to talk with your member of Congress about what's happening in their particular uh, district and region, uh, you know, if your area is doing a municipal resolution or if you're trying to get endorsements or editorial board meetings or social media outreach, uh, it's just useful information to make sure people are aware of the kinds of impacts that are going to impact them directly in their region. And then that's why we need these solutions that CCL advocates for. So there's a lot of different ways to use uh, the information in these slides. So as Brett mentioned, there's two main sources that the information in these slides comes from. The first one is the fourth national climate assessments, uh, which the climate is, national climate assessment is basically like the US version of the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's like every few years, uh, the government brings together the United States best climate scientists and they kind of summarize the latest and greatest climate science research as it pertains to the United States in this big old report and they kind of break it out by region and so that's where we're getting a lot of this specific regional information from um so the fourth assessment came out in 2018 i believe the fifth assessment is coming out toward the end of this year if it's on time so when that happens we'll update the information in these slides uh as we get it but for now we're going with that fourth national assessment information and then of course the ipcc reports uh, which is like the best climate scientists in the world coming together every five to eight years or so to publish a new giant report on the latest and greatest climate science globally. Uh, the latest one was just published 2021 to 2022. Uh, it was the sixth assessment report. So we got a lot of information from that as well in these slides, along with some individual papers too. 
So uh, let's start off by looking at kind of the general ways that climate change impacts uh, different types of extreme weather. Uh, so first of all, the most basic one is that when you burn fossil fuels, it puts carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which has a greenhouse gas, traps more heat, and that uh, increased trapping of heat causes more uh, temperatures to go up and causes more extreme heat waves. So that's kind of the most direct consequence is that global warming, not surprisingly, causes more extreme heat waves. And then those higher temperatures, along with kind of a thirstier atmosphere, cause more evaporation from the soil and also from plants. And that creates drier conditions, which then exacerbates droughts and heat and wildfires uh, in areas where those types of events tend to occur. And then another main consequence is that when the atmosphere warms up, it holds more water vapor. And so then when you get a storm coming through, there's more water vapor available. And so you tend to get more precipitation falling. And so you get more extreme rain events, which then tends to cause more flooding in areas that are prone to a lot of precipitation and a lot of flooding. So which types of these extreme weather events are applicable or most applicable to your region depends on where you live. And so we're going to go break it out by region. And a good example is precipitation. And this is a nice map of how precipitation has changed across the country over the past 30 years, uh, with the greener color being uh, areas getting wetter and the kind of yellow browner color meaning the areas are getting drier. And you can see you can basically break the country in half and the eastern half has mostly gotten wetter and the western half has mostly gotten drier. And so that's a good example of the fact that the type of extreme weather event you're going to experience depends on where you live um, because one half is wetter, the other half is drier, and that has different uh, consequences for extreme weather. So now let's go region by region, starting with the southeast, uh, which has to deal with flooding and hurricanes and heats. And in general, it's probably the most vulnerable region to climate change impacts because there are so many different types of climate change impacts that hit uh, these southeastern states. So uh, one is rising temperatures, more extreme heat, as I talked about. And before I jump into that, I want to talk about these different scenarios that we're going to be looking at that were considered in those two big uh, assessment reports. So one of them is kind of this higher scenario. It's called RCP 8.5, which is not that important. Uh, but this is kind of the path that we used to be on, uh, kind of when these reports were in development. Uh, so it's considered in the past a business as usual scenario. It is now a worst case scenario because you know we had the Paris Agreement in 2015. And since then, more and more countries have been passing climate policies. And so now we're not on this path anymore. Now we're on this, what used to be called a lower scenario path. It's RCP 4.5, which is not that important. But what used to be kind of the lower, moderate, ambition climate policy scenario is now the business as usual scenario, which is a good news story. Like we're already making progress that we're not on this path anymore. Now we're on this lower path. Um, so it's still possible that we could regress and you know, not follow through on our climate policies. And so this higher scenario is still possible. And so I just consider that worst case if we kind of fall back on our climate policies, whereas this, what used to be a lower scenario, this is now the business as usual scenario, and we can still do better than this one by passing more climate policies. So that's kind of the basics of the two scenarios that we're going to look at most of the time. This is like looking out into the future, which paths are going to be taking. So in the Southeast, 
Uh, what we're looking at here is the number of nights with the minimum temperature, so that as low as the temperature cools in a given day is not high, it's not below 75 degrees. So it never cools down less than 75 degrees, which is pretty miserable because you have a hot day and you're waiting for it to cool down overnight and it just never gets very cool overnight. And so it's very uncomfortable and unhealthy. And so you can see basically yellower is a few of these days in a year and redder is a lot of these days. And so you can say this is the middle of the century on the left, the end of the century on the right. And in this worst case scenario, there is a whole lot of red because we get a lot more warming. And so you get a lot of these days that are very hot and nights that don't cool down. Uh, whereas in our current path, you still get a lot of these days, but not nearly as many. So it's still a problem, but not as much of a problem. And this is kind of a theme that we're gonna see that like the more we reduce future warming, the less bad the consequences get. So we still have a lot of control over what path we take and how bad the impacts get. And so according to the fourth National Climate Assessment Report, they said in that worst case scenario up here, uh, nighttime minimum temperatures where it never gets lower than 75 degrees and daytime maximum temperatures where it's above 95 degrees become the norm in the summer. And it's going to be relatively commonplace for nights not to get cooler than 80 degrees and days to get above 100 degrees. Basically, in this scenario, it gets really hot in the south. Again, our current scenario, it still gets hot, but not as bad. And then one consequence of that heat is that it's very bad for workers, especially workers who are outside. So again, this map is looking at our worst case scenario that we're not that we're fortunately not on track for anymore. But in this worst case scenario, you can see a lot of this red in the southeastern region. That is a reduction in between 4% and you know, 6.5-7% in overall uh, hours able to be worked. And so you're reducing labor productivity because it's too hot for people to work outside, people get heat stress and things like that. And so in that scenario, you lose uh, 570 million labor hours per year in the southeastern region by 2090. Um, so it's a, it's a significant impact that you're getting adverse effects to people's health and their productivity and to the economy as a whole when it gets really hot. And then, of course, the southeast has a lot of coastline and so has to worry about sea level rise. And so, so far globally, we've had about nine inches of sea level rise. And by 2030, we're about to, expecting to get another four to six inches. Uh, so sea levels are going to continue to go up uh, along the East Coast and the Gulf Coast. Uh, they actually see more sea level than most of the rest of the world, at least more than the average, because in addition to sea level rise, they tend to have land that is subsiding, going downwards. And so they get this dual effect of rising temperature, or rising sea levels and falling land. And so between 2020 and 2050, we expect to see about another foot of sea level rise along the East Coast, uh, close to a foot and a half along the Gulf Coast. And then sea level rise by 2100 is very uncertain. It depends in part on how much warming we end up seeing by 2100 uh, and also things like how fast ice sheets melt and factors like that. We could see up to five feet of sea level rise by 2100, which is a lot of sea level rise. Um, it's already a problem in the region. Louisiana, for example, is losing a football field of coastal wetlands every hour already due to sea level rise and land subsistence uh, subsiding. And of course, you're going to see more flooding as sea levels continue to rise. So let's shift a little bit to the west there and go to the southern Great Plains states of te Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. 
Uh, so in those states, they mostly have to worry about flooding and drought and heat waves. And we've seen a good example of that this summer with that region, and especially Texas, seeing lots and lots of days above 100 degrees. And uh, the fourth assessment report said that the number of 100 degree days like that is expected to nearly double by 2036 in this region compared to the early 2000s. And especially in urban areas, because urban areas have a lot of asphalt and concrete that kind of radiate heat and make it especially hot. Um, so you can see here in the different parts of this region, uh, the number of 100 degree days in the late 1970s through basically today, it's going to go up and up and up as global temperatures and also regional temperatures rise. So that's going to continue to happen until we can get global warming under control. So obviously, again, the same thing, the more warming we can avoid, then the less this increase in 100 degree days will be. Uh, in this region and everywhere else. Uh, so you can see a nice map again, looking at those two scenarios, our worst case scenario and our uh, current path scenario. And this is a number change in number of days over 100 degrees by the end of the 21st century. So you can see uh, roughly an extra month of the year in our current path above 100 degrees in, uh, on this scenario. And then the worst case scenario, you get like three extra months of days above 100 degrees. So basically, 100 degree days become pretty normal in that worst case scenario. But fortunately, we're on this path, where we're still seeing an extra month of 100 degree days. But again, we can still do better than this path if we can uh, pass more policies to slow global warming and reduce this extra number of 100 degree days in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. And then there's also drought in this kind of central part of the country. Um, so this uh, chart here is looking at kind of uh, soil moisture. Uh, so lower means drier uh, throughout uh, history a thousand years ago. And then you can see we're around here right now. This is where we're going as temperatures rise and things continue to dry out. And so the drought risks become higher and higher and higher as things dry out. So if we look down here, this is looking at the risk of a drought lasting less than a decade um, in the late 1900s and the late uh, 2000s. And so you can see it's roughly a doubled risk in these relatively not too bad droughts. Uh, but really the big changes in these multi-decadal droughts, which we call mega droughts. Uh, so droughts that last for multiple decades, very persistent. Uh, they used to be, you can see in the late 1900s, very, very rare, very, very low risk for a drought to last that long. Uh, in the uh, central or also the southwestern part of the country. And then as we go further into the future, it becomes much, much, much higher risk of these really severe and damaging mega droughts happening. So again, uh, this is this is a scenario in our current path where we're headed towards about 2.7 degrees warming. So again, we can still reduce this risk by slowing down global warming even further and making these mega droughts less likely to happen. And then uh, Texas in particular has to worry about hurricanes sometimes. This is also uh, a threat for the Southeast. And so the IPCC report said that it's likely the proportion of major hurricane intensities and the frequency of rapid intensification events have both increased globally in recent decades. Uh, rapid intensification being when you have like a weak tropical storm and then it goes over some hot water the hot water basically acts as hurricane fuel and really quickly turns it into an intense hurricane, which then becomes very dangerous. So that's happening more frequently. 
Another thing that's changing is hurricane translation speed, which is the speed at which the hurricane moves across the water or the land. Uh, those are tending to slow down, and that causes a problem. Um, a good example of that was, I think it was Hurricane Harvey a few years ago that kind of parked itself over Houston and just dumped tons and tons of rain and brought up a bunch of uh, seawater onto the land. It has caused tons of flooding damage because it was moving so slowly uh, over across Texas there. And so when these hurricanes move that slowly, they cause a lot of damage to one location. And that seems to be happening more often as a result of climate change too. So the IPCC estimated that if we get to 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, we'll see 10% more hurricanes reaching those top categories of four and five. If we get to two degrees, then that rises to 13%. And if we get to four degrees, which is kind of a catastrophic scenario, that's our worst case scenario, uh, then we get 20% more hurricanes reaching categories four and five, which uh, might not sound like a lot, but we only get, I think it's like 10 to 15 named storms or hurricanes per year. Um, so you're talking about like one or two more uh, category four or five hurricanes per year, uh, which then, you know, then you're kind of playing Russian roulette, seeing where those hurricane paths end up going and if they happen to cross over populated areas. And so it's potentially very dangerous to uh, increase this frequency of intense hurricanes. Okay, now let's shift to the southwestern region, which is basically between Colorado, New Mexico, and California. Uh, where that's where I am, and that's where we have to worry the most about wildfires and heat and droughts. So for droughts, there was a really, really good study published last year that looked at the last 22 years, found that it was the driest 22-year period in the southwestern region in at least the last 1,200 years, which was as far back as their records were able to go. They estimated that human-caused climate change made those drought conditions about 42% more intense than they would have been naturally. So we would have had a natural drought. It just would have been like a mildish, moderate drought. And then climate change juiced it and made it a record-breaking drought, which is often what happens. You have natural weather conditions, and then you get climate change uh, putting it on steroids, and then it becomes a super intense type of extreme weather instead. And they concluded that the current 22-year drought in the Southwest would not have been on a mega drought trajectory, or again, mega drought is a multi-decade drought, uh, in terms of severity or duration without human-caused climate change. In fact, it would not have even been classified as a single extended drought event because it would have been like a drought and then a break and then a drought and then a break. But instead, climate change just dried things out so much more that it was basically a 22-year extended single drought event. And then, of course, there's wildfires. So this is the uh, chart of the acreage burned every year in California between 1987 and last year. You can see there's a lot of year-to-year -year variability because some years we happen to get relatively wet and cool weather. Some years we tend to get uh, hotter and drier weather, and that dictates what the fire season looks like. But you can see this line going upward along the chart. That's the trend line. So you can see overall the trend line is going up, up, up as on average the wildfire seasons get worse. Uh, the two worst on record, as you can see, were 2020 and 2021. Uh, we were fortunate in 2022 and so far this year that we had relatively wet uh, weather and so we had relatively mild wildfire seasons. But the next time we have a dry and hot year, we're going to have another bad wildfire season. 
And so the, um, the fourth national climate assessments uh, incorporated a study from 2016 that looked at the human contribution to the size of these Western wildfires. And so what we're looking at here is the cumulative area burned. So we're adding up uh, the area burned in a given year to the area burned in all previous years. So it goes up and up and up every year because you're adding them all up. The yellow here is the area that would have burned in the Western United States uh, naturally. And then the orange is the additional area that burned because of human-caused climate change, making things hotter and drier. And so you can see human-caused climate change approximately doubled the area that would have burned uh, just due to natural climate change. And so there are natural wildfires. There are other factors that contribute to wildfires, like forest management, fire suppression, things like that. But then there's climate change acting on top of it, making everything hotter and drier and making wildfires worse than they would otherwise have been. And then the snowpack is very important to the Southwest, uh, both from the Sierra Nevadas and the Rocky Mountains, uh, because the snow melt from those mountains is a major source of water to a pretty normally dry region. But those snowpacks are shrinking for a couple of reasons. One, uh, when you get hotter temperatures, precipitation is more likely to fall as rain uh, and less as snow. And so the snowpack just doesn't build up as much uh, every year on average. Also, when you have higher temperatures, the snow snowpack melts more quickly earlier in the year, and so it just doesn't last as long into the summer. Uh, so a couple of studies have estimated that for every one degree Celsius of warming you get, you lose about 20 to 25% of the Sierra Nevada snowpack. So far, we've had a little over one degree Celsius warming, and so far, we lost about 25% of the Sierra Nevada snowpack. Uh, we're projected to lose a total of have to almost all of it, depending again on how much global warming happens in the future. Um, so this is another example of the more we can do to slow global warming, the less bad these impacts will be. Um, losing half the snowpack is bad, but losing all the snowpack is much, much worse. Of course, in either case, we still have to figure out how to adapt to those new conditions. If there's half of the remaining snowpack, then we have to get water from other sources, or you know, we also have to become more efficient in our water use and things like that. Um, and so that's you know another point uh, I'll always make is that there are going to be climate change consequences. So we have to do some degree of figuring out how to adapt and live with them, but also we have to try to figure out how to minimize them by passing climate policies to slow, uh, reduce as much warming as we can. Okay, now let's shift a bit to the north from there and go to the northwest, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, which also have to worry about shrinking snowpacks and also stressors on their natural resources because the northwest has some pretty awesome forests, uh, but there are a lot of climate change stressors on those forests. Uh, so, for example, when you get worse droughts and you get these shrinking snowpacks, that creates water stress. There's less water available for the trees. And we're getting more extreme heat waves. The Pacific Northwest had a really bad heat wave a couple years ago. Uh, so that can create some heat stress for the trees when they're seeing abnormally hot temperatures. Uh, of course, wildfires, not surprisingly, are not so good for trees and we're seeing worse wildfires. Uh, bark beetles also like hotter temperatures as we'll talk about here in a minute and bark beetles are not good for forests. Uh, in fact, there was a study a couple years ago that estimated that bark beetles killed 7% of Western forests uh, between 1979 and 2012. 
So this is what a bark beetle does to a tree. It kind of creates these burrows uh, through there and really messes up the tree. These are called bark beetle galleries. And uh, they're basically, they're cutting off the nutrient flow through the tree and so then they can kill the tree as a result. Um, and drought makes trees especially susceptible to these bark beetles um, because the way that uh, trees defend themselves against bark beetles is they have like this waxy resin and chemicals that they kind of secrete and um, and act you know to, as a resistance to defend against the beetles. But when the trees are stressed, they have less resources to devote to making those defenses, that resin and chemicals. So on top of that, uh, as I mentioned, bark beetles like warmer temperatures. So for one thing, when winters are warmer, then there are fewer uh, big cold snaps, and the cold snaps kill off some bark beetles. And so when there are a few of those, more bark beetles survive. And then in warmer temperatures, the beetles reach reproductive age sooner, and then they produce more offspring. So there's already more bark beetles surviving the winter, and then they reproduce even more in the warmer springs, and then you get lots and lots of bark beetles. So there was a study a couple years ago that estimated that for each one degree Celsius of warming, you increase the number of trees killed by bark beetles by about 20%. And then if you add a drought on top of that, you can basically double the number. Uh, you get 35 to 40% more trees killed by bark beetles if you have one degree Celsius warming combined with a drought because the drought is then stressing the trees and making them less able to defend themselves against those bark beetles. And then there's wildfire smoke, which is increasingly becoming a problem in a lot of different regions of the country. Uh, thanks, for example, to the Canadian wildfires that hit uh, kind of the Midwest and Northeast uh, this summer. But we're going to for now look at the Northwest and their wildfire smoke impacts. So this is lo looking at uh, uh, county by county, the number of days in a year that uh, those counties' airs had wildfire smoke exposure. And we're looking at these four years, 2009 to 2013, which had relatively mild wildfire seasons. Uh, so those years, you see a lot of orange here, which is basically something like 20 to 30 days in those years that people in the Northwest were exposed to wildfire smoke. But then we can switch over and look at a bad set of wildfire seasons between 2016 and 2020. Uh, 2020 being, again, the record worst wildfire season in California. And now in this case, you can see there's a lot of purple here. Uh, so you're looking more at like 50 to 60, so roughly twice as many days of the year where people in the Northwest were exposed to this wildfire smoke, uh, which a bunch of researchers said wildfire smoke is particularly bad for people to breathe because there's a lot of nasty stuff in it. And so this has some really bad health consequences if people are breathing more and more wildfire smoke. Um, and then you can see it's, of course, not just the Northwest, California, the middle of the country. And again, if you get those Canadian wildfires, you have to worry about that in, in the Northeast, in the Midwest. So uh, these increased wildfires exposing people to smoke more frequently uh, is a problem all over the place uh, for people's health. Okay, now we're going to switch to a little bit to the east of there, to the northern Great Plains, which is basically from Montana, uh, Wyoming, the Dakotas, and Nebraska. Um, they mostly have to worry about just general instability in the weather and also impacts to the agriculture there. Um, so there are a lot of complicated effects on agriculture from changes in heat and changes in carbon dioxide. So for example, we're going to see more 
uh, frequent extreme heats. And when that heat comes, when it's a pollination period and a grain fill period, that will reduce crop yields. Uh, and so that's bad for agriculture. Also, again, a lot of weeds and pests like warmer temperatures. And so they're going to see more and more of those weeds and pests impacting uh, the farms and crops in this region. But it's a relatively cool region. And so a little bit of warming actually makes the growing season a little bit longer. So that's actually a somewhat beneficial effect. And also some crops benefit from more CO2 in the air. And so that's also a little bit of a beneficial effect. But uh, one thing that's not good for crops is less water reliability, either getting too much water at a given time or not having enough water at a given time. That's a big challenge for agriculture that is based on irrigation. Um, so that's a real problem that a lot of agriculture is going to have to deal with. And we're going to talk about that in a minute here. There is also a lot of ranching of livestock in this region. Uh, it is the largest remaining grassland ecosystem in North America with lots of grasslands and uh, livestock grazing on it. But it turns out that in warmer temperatures, the quality and the nutritional content of those grasses decreases. And then that makes it harder for the livestock to gain weight by grazing on those grasslands. And so that could be a problem for ranchers trying to raise livestock in this particular region. So you can see lots of different impacts, some good, mostly bad on agriculture in the region. So let's go into those precipitation changes that I mentioned. Um, so we're just expecting to see a shift in when the precipitation falls uh, in this particular region. In the winter and the spring, we're expecting to see more rainfall. But in the summer, we're expecting to see less rainfall, especially the warmer it gets. Uh, the summer, we get less rainfall in hotter, hotter scenarios. And then again, I mentioned that the warmer atmosphere holds more water vapor, and so you tend to get more extreme precipitation. Um, and so you're going to see extreme precipitation become about close to 10% more intense and also much more frequent that you see extreme, extreme precipitation up to 50% more frequently by 2050, again, depending on the warming scenario. If we can limit global warming, get it under control, then you see less of an increase in this frequency and intensity of extreme precipitation. Um, but just in general, not just on agriculture, but there's been research showing that precipitation pattern changes can have all kinds of disruptive effects on productivity and economic growth. Like when it's raining, people just don't like to go outside and go shopping and buy stuff. And so it's just generally bad when you get like more extreme rainfall. Uh, or when things are drier, like all different things, different basically changes in patterns that people are accustomed to and that we've developed our infrastructure around, just changing patterns, just throws off the economy and productivity. Um, and that is certainly true for agriculture as well. And then, of course, in this region, there's lots of great outdoor recreation. We got Yosemite, lots of great um, rivers and streams that people like to fish in and go hunting and things like that. Um, but climate change has impacts on those. Again, we have a shrinking snowpack and uh, runoff happening sooner in the year, which uh, later in the summer reduces the amount of water going into the streams and rivers. Uh, which has adverse impacts on outdoor recreation in the rivers, especially in the late summer. Also, the rivers and streams become warmer, which is not surprisingly not good for cold water fish. Cold water fish don't like warmer temperatures, um, so you might get a shift from cold water species to more warm water species. 
Um, but the cold water uh, fishing um, in the northern Great Plains is, uh, as a result, expected to uh, reduce uh, revenue and cost the region tens of million dollars per year because there's just going to be fewer cold water fish for people to fish for. And we're already seeing impacts on those cold water fish species due to these higher water temperatures and they're getting uh, some diseases like proliferative kidney disease uh, as the temperatures in the streams get higher already. All right, continuing to move to the east, we're now going to the Midwest, where we, of course, have lots of agriculture to worry about, uh, lots of problems with heat and biodiversity. So here we're looking at basically from Ohio to Minnesota and Missouri, all those states in the Midwestern region. So I like this map because it shows what we're looking at here is everything that's not dark blue is a county in which a significant proportion of the land is used for agriculture. And you can see, so you can see how much of these Midwestern states is used for agriculture. It's just so big there. Um, and 75% of that farmland in the Midwest is used to grow corn and soybeans. And they're worth, together, almost $50 billion of revenue to the Midwest every year. And then they get a few billion more for wheat and oats. But corn and soybeans are like huge economic drivers for these Midwestern states. But climate change is not so good, uh, especially for corn. Uh, corn does not like heat. Um, and so there have been a variety of studies looking at how heat impacts corn yields and finding that each degree Celsius of warm, you get about a five to 10% reduction in corn yields uh, as a result. Historically, uh, changes in precipitation, especially droughts or extreme rain, have been the primary factors that contribute to when there is a bad crop season in the Midwest. Um, but that's actually expected to change. That, that will still be true for soybeans, which are less vulnerable to heat. But we're expecting that heat will be the biggest factor in corn yields as temperatures get hotter and hotter. Corn doesn't like that, so that's going to be the biggest factor, whether it's a particularly hot year or just a real, like a warm year. That's going to be the main determining factor in these corn yields that are worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars in revenue per year right now. And then there's pests, which, as we talked about in a couple other regions, pests like warmer weather. And so you get pests, you get pathogens um, that are kind of migrating to the north as the temperatures get warmer and warmer, and so they're going to be more frequent and potentially different species coming into these Midwestern farms and uh, causing all kinds of havoc with the crops there. And then there's kind of natural plants trying to shift to migrate and adapt to the changing climates. Um, so if we look at this map in the middle, this is how climate zones have changed so far between the 1950s to the 2000s. So what used to be the climate in kind of southern Wisconsin is now the climate in sort of the middle of Wisconsin. And what used to be the climate in the middle of Wisconsin is now is climate in kind of north, northwest Wisconsin. And so just temperatures, because it gets warmer, the temperature zones kind of shift north, 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 and in this case, a little bit west. Uh, so you can see that with this yellow area arrow here. And then this green one here shows how plants have migrated during that same period. Uh, so you can see they are kind of migrating in that same north, northwest direction. But you can see the arrows are smaller than the red arrows are. So they're moving in the right direction. They're just not moving fast enough because there are limits to how fast plants can spread their seeds and their pollen and move uh, and move geographically. 
And so over here, these blue arrows, this is showing the difference between the change in climate zones and how far the species have moved. Um, so again, they're moving in the right direction, but they're not moving fast enough. So uh, basically these arrows show the difference in where they are now to where they should be if they were keeping up with climate change. And basically they're not able to keep up with climate change at this point. So if we were able to slow global warming down, that would give the plants a better chance to keep up with the shifting climate. And hopefully at some point we can stop global warming and so they don't have to keep migrating and struggling to keep up with the shifting climate zones. Okay, one more region, we're going to the Northeast where we have to worry about flooding and heat and impacts to fisheries. Um, so really quickly, uh, the Northeast already has lots of flooding impacts. This is looking at annual uh, losses in millions of dollars. So the dark red is areas that lose $25 million per year already due to flooding. And you can see lots of this in the Northeast because it's a very wet region and it's also got this coastline. And then here, we're looking at how much that will increase in, from 2020 to 2050 as a result of climate change. The dark green meaning you get an extra $5 million per year in losses to flooding. And again, most of this is along the coastline and especially in this Northeast region. Uh, we saw a good example of this with the big flooding we got in Vermont and New York recently with lots of precipitation. Then you also have to worry about sea level rise. So lots of extra water in the Northeast. And then we've also got shifting marine species. Again, species trying to keep up with the shifting climates as temperatures rise in the oceans as well. Uh, so a good example of this, if we could look at the black here, that is Atlantic cod, which were already at a very high latitude. And so they weren't able to migrate any further north compared to like black sea bass here that were further south and they were able to migrate further north. And so what happened was that the cod in the Gulf of Maine, they couldn't keep up with the rising temperatures and their population plummeted. Whereas the black sea bass kind of took over for them and their population's gone up because they kind of migrated into uh, the same kind of general area. And then we can look at lobster, which have been able to migrate northward as well. And so, but if you look at southern New England, uh, their lobster population has plummeted as lobsters have tended to migrate towards the Gulf of Maine. So now we're seeing this large increase in Maine lobster because the lobsters are shifting to the north. Uh, also, they've had better, more sustainable lobstering practices in Maine than they did in New England. Uh, but definitely a contributing factor is this warming water kind of forcing the lobsters to migrate further to the north. And so you get these species uh, migrations as a result of climate change. And sometimes when the species can't migrate, that has really bad effects on those species. So that's kind of the last one um, that we're gonna talk about. Uh, so again, these resources are available on CCL Community. If you go, there's a resources button at the top of the page on CCL Community. And then toward the bottom of the resources is this local impacts button. And then if you click on local impacts, you'll see the regional climate impacts presentation slides there. And again, uh, please don't just talk about these bad impacts and bump people, bump people out. Also talk about the policy solutions. And on each of these decks at the end, we've got some example slides of talking about CCL's different um, policy areas. So for example, we've got a little summary of clean energy permitting reform, how it's important, links to our training page. Uh, we talk about why permitting reform is important so that we can achieve the potential emissions cuts from the Inflation Reduction Act. We talk about you know, what CCL supports in terms of permitting reform specifically, and so on and so forth. We've got stuff for all of our different policy areas. So that's 
just kind of some examples of slides that you could put in there. So you're talking about solutions and not just talking about all these disturbing impacts. First off, just a huge thank you, Dina. This was just incredibly in-depth and obviously a, a whole litany of reasons why each of us are motivated to take the actions that we are. And I think at least for me, it was really helpful to keep in mind outside of my own immediate impacts, some of the other stories that you were able to tell, not only with broader, more kind of general thoughts about what we hear often when we hear about climate impacts, but specific implications with ties to economic struggles in these regions that all of us live and care about. And so just know that that has been a real benefit for all of us. As we love recording our impact and our collective um, advocacy, that we have an ability to log your training. If you have any questions after tonight, know that Dana is always making himself generously available in both the forums <laughs> and Nerd Corner and Twitter and his email. So um, I am going to list um, almost all of those here on this slide as soon as it um, modifies over. Uh, but the easiest one to remember is simply just cclusa.org forward slash Nerd Corner. There's always a robust conversation going on there. And uh, if you want to weigh in on any topic that you're curious about, a whole bunch of other people can help out and explore that discussion. So with that, thank you all so much for being here. I'm going to unmute all lines so that we can hear each other as we send off. And uh, we look forward to also hearing your stories about how you're using this deck. So feel free to share in the forums what you found useful and where you're applying this. Stay safe, everyone, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.